0: Please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. The Bible a magnificent uh, collection of books. It's a library of books. And it could have been that we said turn to ch- Proverbs chapter 14 and study some riddles written in a poetic form. We could have turned to like first hour Psalm 8 and poetically described the theology of God's glorious creator and man's delegated glory as the ruler over god's creation we could have talked about a lot of things from a lot of different places in the bible but today we're just we're reading a story in matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 you have the temptation of the lord jesus christ and i'll read it with you And jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights he then became hungry and the tempter came and said to him If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said, Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him, and that's uh, Deuteronomy 6, 16. Then the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. All the angels came and began to minister to him. They got out his blessing, to the reading of his precious word. The most intensive uh, portion of the life of Christ we have in the Gospels regarding satanology, the most uh, biblical satanology I believe we have in the Gospels. The teaching the Bible has on this enemy of God, the evil one. Jesus prayed about in Matthew six: "Deliver us from the evil one." From the wiles of the devil, the Bible mentions Satan in several places, but it might be surprising to you how few verses actually directly refer to him. The Bible is not meant to pique our curiosity and satisfy our curiosity about the invisible things that are going on behind the scenes that we can't see. It isn't designed, it isn't written to just uh, keep us captivated in terms of our morbid curiosity. But it does tell us enough. That there is a war, it is invisible. The captain that we're fighting against is Satan. He's got a cadre of fallen angels and we're dealing with that. One of the clearest statements in the Bible on Satanology, the study in the scriptures, what the Bible teaches about this enemy of God is in Revelation chapter 12 where you have all of his designations. In Revelation chapter 12 verse three, another sign appeared in the heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and seven horns, uh, ten horns, and on his heads were seven crowns. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour the child. This is a description of the enemy of God that we're reading about. Because we have this, um, this character defined. The, child, the, the She gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule in the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The summary of all of Israel's history leading to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had... Had a place prepared by God so that there should be nourished for 1,260 days. And in that calendar, that would be three and a half years. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. And here's the designation the serpent of old. The serpent of old. What is that a reference to? Genesis 3? The serpent is the most crafty animal. How do we know that the serpent is uh, representing Satan in Genesis 3, or I believe it was dwelled by Satan? Because he speaks against God. He refutes God's word. He was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. When this took place, when this is, will take place is a, a, a matter of discussion in the interpretation of Revelation. Most believe that this is a reference to a future uh, event in which Satan no longer has access to the throne room of heaven. And it is at the midpoint of that seven uh, years, that week of, of seven years um, described in Daniel chapter 9. that the midpoint after, um, after three and a half years that becomes the time of the devil's desperation. Nevertheless, I wanted to point out in verse 9 that you have, I couldn't find the reference, verse 9, that you have Satan, who is the devil. So that's the Old Testament, Satan, that's Hebrew. The New Testament, Diabolos, we translate devil. And the dragon described in this vision that that he has, who's the serpent of old from Genesis chapter 3. And what we're supposed to do with this is understand that there is a personal being that has been behind the problems and the trials and the sufferings of this present darkness that we're in from back in the Garden of Eden when the woman is tempted to eat the forbidden fruit. It's a problem that's been with us since the first parents. And we're not talking about mythology. We're not talking about, uh, I mean, there are, there's imagery in, in the vision John has in Rev 12. We're not talking about mythology. We're talking about history. If we don't understand the invisible warfare that has been A problem for the human race since Genesis 3, then we don't understand history. We don't understand what's happened and where it's headed. And once you do understand that there is this war that rages, it all kind of comes into focus why this would occur in Jesus' life right after his baptism and anointing, right after he's been designated by the Father, that he's the chosen one. What we're going to read or what we have read in Matthew 4 today is when Satan does his best to pull the Lord Jesus Christ off of his mission. By showing us this in God's word, the apostles are helping us understand the nature of our Savior's mission. It wasn't just a performance of actions that he was supposed to do. You know, do the right thing, don't commit any violations of the law, go to the cross, suffer for... It wasn't just actions that he was supposed to take. It was a personal mission that his father gave him And if he ever severed that personal connection, that would be end of the exercise. That is what sin is. It's a severing of relationship from God. And that's what Satan accomplished in the Garden of Eden for all human beings. And that's what, by killing us through Adam, and that's what uh, he's attempting to do, recapitulate here in this uh, wilderness encounter with the devil. Well, where we, where we find ourselves in Matthew, as we've said, this is the outline of the gospel of Matthew. And I want to refresh so you always remember from now on and forevermore, that the way Matthew wrote his portrayal of Christ and his work as he described the offer of the coming kingdom of Christ that he offered it to Israel and Israel rejected it. And therefore you Jewish Christians that are receiving this gospel, what are you supposed to do in terms of his discipleship in the interim? And so he structured it around five long messages that Matthew reported the, the words. I'm told that uh, Spurgeon did not write out his sermons. Charles Spurgeon is famous for his sermons, and you can get his sermons in collections. I have them on electronics. I have some uh, hard copy uh, versions of Spurgeon's sermons. Some of you are like, well, you could read that a little bit, Pastor, because um, he was a really good preacher. Um, <laughs> Spurgeon didn't write out what he was going to say. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote out in pencil or, or by hand everything he was going to say and I don't know how this started or, or was used by God in the, what the so-called First Great Awakening. But I'm told that, that Thomas, um, that Jonathan Edwards preached like this. He read his sermon word for word off of the page on the pulpit, said amen, and got up and walked away. That's how he preached. I don't preach that way. If I write out my sermon, I probably will read it to you word for word, and then it'll feel like I read it to you. But what's interesting, Spurgeon didn't do this. He was a genius. He was a genius um, uh, of oratory, like few people in English history. Using the English language, read anything he wrote, you'll see what I mean. But Spurgeon had—he called it heads. He did. He outlined his sermon, and he spoke the—he he spoke off of his outline, of course, with the scriptures, and—and um, and then. But what's interesting is we have word for word printed records of his sermons because what they would do. He was so famous and so popular so beloved that they would write furiously. The stenographers in his church, and this is a lot of big church, they would, they would copy down as best they could what he said like they were taking dictation. And many times, if not all the time, they were published uh, in the next day's paper. And so we have the notes of the people listening to Spurgeon. We don't have he submitted his notes for, for printing. We have what people wrote down that they heard him say, and that's the re- when you read his sermon. It's very interesting that way. Um, I think it's fun to, grab, uh, to find, try to find somebody with a good English brogue read a Spurgeon sermon because you kind of get a feel, you know. Anyway, um, you have something like this in Matthew. It may be that Jesus said a lot more things. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is a very brief discourse. It seems the way the narrative works that he probably said a lot more things. And I think he said the things in the Sermon on the Mount many times. I think he restated these messages in many ways. And so the different gospels will echo these messages. But you have Matthew's account inspired word for word by the Holy Spirit of the substance of Jesus' teaching, of what he taught them, quoting him and summarizing at times for him. And and, and it's, it's not our purpose to determine which is which. When we get to see Jesus, we'll hear him word for word. But what you have from the Spirit of God through Matthew is what he wanted him to write about these long discourses. And there are five of them in Matthew. And we argue that the end of each big chunk of Matthew is the big discourse. The stories that are kind of the episodes in his life that are before those discourses are sort of introductory to the discourse. So we put 4 through 7 together, put 8 through 11, or we recognize Matthew putting 8 through 11 together, chapter 11, verse 2 through, verse four, through, through the end of chapter 13. And so, that's the, so you can trace the argument of Matthew in his narrative uh, arrangement of these messages. The king is introduced where we are now, and we're concluding that section today. And then you have the platform for the kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount where he correctly, of course, correctly, interprets, not reinterprets, not redefines, not adds to, interprets the Mosaic law. What was righteousness that God was looking for? It wasn't a clean outside and a dirty inside. It's, it's loving God from the heart, and so your actions carry that out, and that's the Sermon on the Mount. A great discipleship discourse throughout chapter 10. The great rejection of Christ And then the parables of the kingdom, what will happen in the interregnum before he comes back in the time in which we live in chapter 13, the kingdom parables. And then the the disciple discourse in much of chapters 17 and 18, the king's response to their rejection. Finally, the formal uh, rejection of the king issues forth in the Olivet Discourse, one of the most famous of all prophetic statements, and perhaps the outline that you start with before you go to the Revelation and Daniel. You go to what Jesus did and see how he arranged it. And when I, I contend Matthew 24 reads a lot like Revelation 6 and following because he was talking about the same thing, this coming time of tribulation. And then the narrative concludes the way Matthew does it, all the gospels do, with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's, that is how the gospel of Matthew is structured. And if you've read it, maybe you noticed that um, we're going to hear some stories and then a long teaching, and then some stories and a long teaching, some, some healing and things he did, and then a long teaching. That is the way Matthew intended to structure it. Here's where we are in this first chunk. We've talked about his origin in terms of the genealogy, his arrival and the birth, the world's reaction in Herod uh, attempting to kill the babies in Bethlehem. But uh, the Magi, these wise men of the East, the Gentiles coming to worship the king of Israel, the Messiah of the Jews. The ministry of John the Baptist, concluding with the baptism in the Jordan and the Spirit's anointing of Jesus Christ for his earthly ministry. And now we're demonstrating, we're seeing Matthew demonstrate the fitness of the king. He really is going to rule under God and not submit to the, to the tempter as, man, as Adam did. In this section, we see Jesus as the last Adam. When the first Adam who was given rule over God's works was tempted by the devil in the Garden of Eden, through his wife, he succumbed to that pressure and demonstrated his unfitness to rule as the subordinate, as the delegated king under God the Father. But Jesus, God the Son, in the flesh of mankind in this incarnation, in Matthew chapter 4, demonstrates that through the word of God, He is fit to rule and manifests the character of Isaiah 11, the king who would rule in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see in this section. We're looking at the fitness of the king under his temptation. Now, obviously, there are many ways to understand, well, many categories of theology that are addressed by this section. Biblical angelology, the teaching on angels, subset biblical Satanology and biblical demonology are addressed here. For example... Then Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, Pneuma. That isn't by his human spirit. This is a reference to the same spirit at the end of Matthew 3, who descended on him like a dove in the form of a dove. This is God, the third person, God, the Holy Spirit, who would empower, as Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before, would, would empower the Messiah for his ministry as the son that was given to us. He would be the branch of Jesse, the root from the shoot of Jesse, and he would be empowered by the spirit of God. Here the Holy Spirit, who has descended on him like a dove just a few, just a few verses earlier, or the, the two verses earlier, is now leading him into the wilderness. He was led by the, into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Let me, let me tell you what this means uh, as best I can in its Greek structure. The first clause that he was led by the, into the wilderness by the Spirit tells you what happened How did Jesus get into the wilderness? He was led, Ago, he was led by the Holy Spirit who is indwelling him to equip him for ministry in his humanity. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The question that we might ask that this answers is why did the Holy Spirit lead him in the wilderness is answered by the second clause. Why did the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? And the answer is so that he could be tempted by the devil. Now, that is some powerful, loaded theological stuff going on there. Sovereign, righteous, holy, omnipotent God has an agenda, Satan is opposed to that agenda. He is not righteous or sovereign. He is not loving. He is the father of lies, and he is the deceiver of the whole world. And he wants to destroy every human being he can, and definitely devour the child, as we read in Revelation twelve. He's opposed to every aspect of God's agenda. And yet, Satan, like all of God's earthly creation, all of His creation under God, is part of what God is doing. He is using the wrath of Satan. He is not causing Satan to be wicked. He's not causing Satan to be a tempter. He is using Satan, who is the tempter, to accomplish his agenda. And that's so very important. Maybe you're opposed to God. Don't think for a second, if you're opposed to him, that you're not part of his works. He's going to glorify himself, even despite the wrath of Satan, who desperately wants to undo all of God's work. Satan is the destroyer. He wants to separate man from his creator, and he wants as much company as he can get in the lake of fire. That's his destiny. And that's his agenda. And despite that fact, God is still able. And this is this is something we learn all through the prophets. He can pick up a dirty instrument. God can use a dirty instrument and not get himself dirty. That's the nature of his holiness and his righteousness and his glory and his majesty and his sovereignty. Then Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you have questions after you read such a loaded thought, join the club. We have questions. The challenge is how do you answer them? You can arrogantly conjecture something, feel comfortable with that, and then say, well, that's what I'm going to go with. Or you can, like Bible students who love God and worship him, say, when he tells me, I know. And if he doesn't tell me, I don't know. And I don't want to go beyond what the text says, but I do want you to see this. The Holy Spirit was carrying out the objective of the Father in the life of the Messiah for a specific purpose, and we've generally concluded it's to demonstrate that this indeed is the one who has endured all the temptations like we have yet without sin. He really has pioneered our spiritual life, and notice that it's very emphatic. We have God the Son the sovereign God of the universe, second person in the flesh of mankind, we call the hypostatic union, the God-man. We have him in his humanity being led by the Holy Spirit. This is very emphatic. In the life of Jesus, he pioneered in his humanity our spiritual life. He has the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is in there to accomplish all that the Father intends for him to do. So Jesus goes into the crucible in the wilderness. In verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, it's very emphatic, they, you have the aorist participle after, we conclude it's a temporal participle, he then became hungry, Who stare on is after. It's a, we translate it then. So we say, uh, he, was, he was, how hungry would you be then after 40 days and 40 nights with no bread? He is then, he became hungry. And uh, I have known people who have fasted for longer periods of time. I've heard of accounts where people with, uh, with a need for some, uh, some radical weight loss have, have fasted even longer and under physician's care with certain vitamin infusions and things. This is certainly in the realm of natural possibility. It's not a miracle. Maybe that the, if it seems like a miracle that after this he became hungry, but I think the, the, the idea Matthew is presenting is imagine how hungry you would be so he is brought by God's plan, apparently, since he's being led by the Spirit, into a weakened condition after the flesh. This is the situation you find yourself in when you don't feel good, and you think, why? Well, I don't feel good. I've got this sickness. I don't feel good. I'm tired. I don't feel good. You know, bad things have happened. And you can understand why you may make some bad choices, submit to some succumb to some temptations, because you're kind of in a weakened state. I, you know, I wasn't having my best day. It's that uh, that mom that that's dealing with a crabby kid and says well he's just out of sorts he's tired he's he's being bad because he needs a nap well okay so so when we're tired or whatever, we are reduced in our abilities well that's exactly what's happened here is that the Lord Jesus christ under the under the leading of the Holy Spirit has been brought to an extreme weakness after the flesh where that's a problem and it's a glaring problem, and it becomes something that you could see the temptation is really heavy on him. He's brought in this after the flesh to a weakened condition. Now, theologically, let's talk theology for just a second. This always comes up. Isn't Jesus God, but he's also man. You've already said the hypostatic union. One person, the unique person of the universe, who is at one time God the Son, that's undiminished deity, who be incarnating into mankind is, is true humanity in one person forever. That doctrine of the hypostatic union we've said really since Tertullian, since the 200s. We've described it this way. The Bible teaches this, that he's really God, but he's really man. And so we call him the God-man. Well, I mean, is this a real temptation? Because in his deity, God doesn't get hungry. This is just in his humanity. And so we try to figure out and parse out the natures of the two natures in God. And my advice on this theologically, and I recommend you read as much as you can and think this through, and um, my advice on this is that what Jesus is doing in this narrative is describing the real effects on a real human being. That the kenosis, the voluntary uh, restriction of independent use of attributes of his divinity, that that idea doesn't mean he's not God, it means that he is truly experiencing what we experience as humans. And that may be a mystery, but guess what? I just told he's one person with two natures. Of course it's mystery. So what I do with this is I take it as written and I say, he's experiencing true hunger, and but he's empowered by the, the spirit of God. And so I say in his humanity. So you say, well, okay, but deity can't sin. Deity can't be tempted. The, the infinite power of God, Satan is nothing compared to that. And so is it a real temptation? And so we've had the debates. Some are... Posse non poceri, others are pocari non posi, and so all of us say we don't speak Latin anymore. Uh, in his divinity, he is not able to sin. In his humanity, with no sin nature, empowered by the Spirit of God, he's able not to sin. So, which is it? What is it? He's the God man. In his deity, he's not able to sin. In his humanity, empowered by the Spirit, he's able not to sin. And we're demonstrating, Matthew's demonstrating, that he is fit to be our Savior, and to rule under the Father as the, as the, uh, the last Adam. So he then became hungry it is a real statement about a real experience that the humanity of our Savior ex- endured. And in that sense, he is an exemplar for you. Now, you can't be God. You'll never be God. I know that a lot of uh, spirituality in our modern day proposes the divinization of the humanity. And that's a, that's a great error. It's a great historic blasphemy. And Satan wants you to think that in Isaiah chapter 14. I will, I will be like the most high. But, but you won't be. You're made in God's image to serve him forever and ever. And that infinite distinction between the creator and creature will continue in the resurrection and forevermore. And you better come to love it. You'll never be God. Just love that thought. You'll be, you'll be God's image bearer made for his purpose to glorify him forever. That's, that's called heaven. That's glory. But in the humanity of Jesus Christ and the attributes of God that we share with him, the work of God bringing his love through us so we imitate our father His beloved children and walk in love, you, you will apply this to yourself. In the spirit, you can walk and glorify the father despite the temptation that you encounter. And so there's, a, there's an application for us that runs through this. Nevertheless, in verse 3, after he, that's Satan, came up to him, that's Jesus, the tempter said, the tempter, I want to bring out this word. This is pyrazzo P-E-I, P-E-I-R-A-Z-O is the Greek, and it runs through the whole story. There's a, it's a verb, and it's used as a, as, a, as a noun here to describe Satan. He called the tempter, the one who tempts. I'm not really sure how to deal with the naming thing for Satan. I'm sure that Halal Ben-Shahar in um, Isaiah 14 is not to be translated into Latin as Lucifer so that his original name in eternity past was Lucifer. That's a Latin development long after Isaiah wrote that he's the son of the morning, Halal Ben-Shahar. So, so the, the shining one, the son of the dawn, is a description of him. I, if Halal Ben-Shahar is his name, then okay. He's called Satan in Hebrew, which means adversary. It means the one that stands opposed. And it could be opposed, and that could be in a general sense. But in the garden, you see he's opposed to God and God's word. Adversary. In the New Testament, he's called diabolos. Translated into English, or transliterated as devil. Doesn't that help? Diabolos, devil? Well, what does that mean? Is that a vacuum cleaner? What is that? Is that a kind of ham? Devil ham? We had deviled eggs at the church picnic. I don't know how that works, okay? Thank goodness there was some angel food cake, right? But... um, what what is what is devil diabolos or devil means it means the accuser it means the slanderer it's verbal opposition verbal opposition has god said you'll not you'll die you will not die for god knows that when you he's the one opposing god by slandering his character and he does this with humans we read in job chapter 1 you take his health away and he will curse you to your face. This is a slander that Satan smears God's people with. That's the idea. He's opposed to you and he's using verbal attack. Verbal attack, the most insidious verbal attack, listen to it, isn't someone saying, uh, you're belittling you and make you feel bad about yourself. That's not the worst kind of verbal attack. There's something far more insidious, far more viral, far more destructive, cancerous to our souls. And it's the verbal attack of deception. It's when you and I, designed to process the truth of God, believe a lie. When we swallow a lie and start to think in terms of the lie. And that's why in Rev. 12, he's called the deceiver of the nations. This is the greatest verbal attack, that he's the liar. He's the father of lies. He's the father of murderers. He's the origin of murder, the destruction of God's image bearer. Okay. That's who we're talking about here. And so described here as the tempter, the one that God has allowed a little bit of leash to prove that the son is the fit king to rule. That's, that's what's happening. If you can stand up under this temptation, you have undone the problem of the garden and you are, you are ready to, to function as the last Adam. That seems to be the picture. After he came to him, after Satan came to Jesus, the tempter said, if you, I capitalize my divine pronouns, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now here's a fun thing that jumped out to me in the English and then it also jumped out to me in Greek because I had a question, this word command. So this is probably the most arrogant thing in the Bible. Now watch this with me. If you are the son of God, he is the son of God, right? We already know this, but we know who we're talking about. Satan knows it too. And Satan says, if you're the son of God. And then that next word, command. Command. Ape. It's a simple little four-letter word in Greek. It's an aorist, watch this, imperative. It is an aorist imperative. The author is expressing, the one that says that word, is expressing his intention, his desire, often usually as a command. Command. The word command is issued by Satan to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, as a command. He tells the commander what command to issue. I mean, that's the grammar of it. And that is something you wouldn't necessarily see if you weren't watching it close. When when Satan tells Jesus, command these stones, he is issuing an imperative to the one who is the origin of all the imperatives. There really is no playing chess with God for the creature. There really isn't. It's either, is God going to have his way in your willingness or is God going to have his way despite your cussedness? Which one? I'm sorry, your (laughs) obstinance. Is God going to have his way as you work with him? And so you get to be part of that in a glorious way. Or is God going to have his way in demonstration of the consequences of the rebellion, of the rejection, of the arrogance? Which one is it? God's going to get his way command that these stones become bread. Anyway, it jumped out at me. But he answered and said, it has been written in Deuteronomy 8.3, not upon bread alone will a man live, but upon every word which comes out from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8.3. So Jesus is super hungry. He's been brought to a very low point. Whose will is it that Jesus fasts for 40 days and 40 nights? Did he have this idea and say, you know what? It's going to be 40 days and 40 nights, Lord. I just really commit myself. It says nothing like that. He was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is God's will for him. God has brought him to this state where he is susceptible to these kinds of attacks. And so Satan hits him right at the point where he's weak. How about some nice flaky warm bread? Wouldn't that be good? Have you ever been hungry enough for crackers to be really good? You know, if you're really, really hungry, I mean, like go a couple days and then somebody offer you a saltine and a glass of water, it's heaven, right? Forty days, fluffy bread. Look, whatever kind of bread you want to make, it's you. Challah, just make you some awesome, delicious bread. I mean, you could put butter on it too. It wouldn't be hard. is making stones into bread. And Jesus answers and says that the, the food is the will of the Father not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, I personally believe, I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus is fulfilling Deuteronomy 17 here. I believe that the king of Israel was supposed to make a copy of this law in front of the priests. He was supposed to have his own copy of the law so that he knew it. He had written it out. He had read it. He had read it again. He had proofed it. He had processed it. He had thoroughly absorbed it. Jesus meets all of Satan's attacks with words from Deuteronomy. I think Jesus is demonstrating that he is the king that should and will rule over Israel, over the nations. That's what Matthew is designed. Here is your king. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy and does exactly what the subordinate ruler under God the Father needs to do. He says, you say this, my stomach says this, but God said this. And so I choose what God said over what my stomach says or what the tempter says. And right there, beloved, is your spiritual life. You have your inner appetites fed by your sin nature. Jesus doesn't have a sin nature, but he's brought to a weakened state here in his, in his hunger. You have inner appetites that are screaming for sin. You have Satan outside screaming, listen to your inner appetites, obey your thirst. Do what feels right, just do it. Satan is all around you screaming to fulfill your appetites. Do what makes you feel good. The heart knows what the heart wants. Pick your little slogan of Satan's little favorite ways to tell you that your inner feelings are the right feelings, right? This is exactly how you meet this, and Jesus pioneered this for us. You take God's word, and you believe it. You believe what God said, and you lift that shield of the faith with the word of God right at that attack, And it shuts down my inner appetite to sin. Well, I mean, this isn't as important to me. I mean, my feeling is there, but I've got something that I'm committed to, I'm convicted by, I'd rather have. And you watch for the feelings of joy, of satisfaction, of delight, not of self-righteous satisfaction, but of knowing God and knowing you're walking with him. When you say no to the temptation of the flesh, you say yes to the Lord. But you do it through the word of God, Jesus, God, the son. Do you think he needs to quote the scriptures? apparently. Apparently that's what needs to happen is we need to know the word so that we can apply it in the moment. Jesus quotes the scripture directly. Again, demonstrating he, he knows Deuteronomy very well and he can apply it to the circumstance. It's been written not upon bread alone will a man live, but upon every word which comes out from the mouth of God. I won't eat because God said not to eat is what that means. In this case, I've got a mission, and I'm supposed to be weakened in this case, and I cannot satisfy my hunger. Of course, I could have turned the whole desert into into enchiladas, right? But he didn't because it wasn't the will of the Father, so he says no to the bread temptation. And um, this is a great moment for us to to notice that there are two more temptations, but it is lunchtime. We will continue. In verse 5, then the devil took him into the holy city. And he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's been written in Psalm 91, out of context, 11 and 12. His angels will command concerning you, and upon hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. My translation of the Greek didn't go back to the, to the Hebrew of the Psalm because I'm quoting, I'm translating Matthew who wrote what he wrote by the spirit. All right. So, so he does quote Psalm 91, which is messianic. Psalm 91 is a messianic Psalm. I know we like to read it. When we go to combat, but it's a messianic Psalm about the Messiah, about Jesus. And Satan applies, if you're the son of God, then messianic Psalms apply to you. Then this is what'll happen. You can jump off the temple and you can glorify yourself by demonstrating who you are because the angels show up and bear you up. And that's what that's will happen. Now, this is obviously a challenge to, the, to be sensational. It's a challenge to do something flashy. It's a challenge for Jesus to gain fame or to broadcast himself. And if you watch the Gospels, and I know a lot of you are reading them and reading them, you've read them all your lives, watch the messianic secret in the Gospels where Jesus says, don't tell anybody. It's not the time to tell anybody yet. Just, just go present yourself to the priest when he heals a leper. the leper. It's called the messianic secret by the theologians because they say Jesus is not out there blowing a trumpet and saying the Messiah is here. I mean, the trumpet's coming, right? But, but he's demonstrating that he is the Messiah in a quiet way in case-by-case in case events that we have detailed in the Gospels. And eventually he can't even find a place to sit. He has to sit on a boat off of the water, off of the shore a little bit, because the crowds are so thronging him that he's got to talk to them where, they'll, where he could get the word out. He's got to speak from the boat, okay? And so everybody wants to touch him. Everybody wants a poster. Everybody wants his autograph. But what he's here to do is teach them the word of God. And that's the priority all through the gospels. There's a lot for us to learn here. But, but anyway, Satan offers fame here. He offers him fame and glory. He says, demonstrate that you are who you are. But see, the problem with that is that it's not wrong that he fulfill messianic psalms and it's not wrong that he have glory. In fact, that's John 17. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. The problem is the timing. It's the timing. And Jesus thinks that the transgression Of the Father's timing is the transgression of the Father. And that's why this is a temptation, and the answer is no. Notice Satan is so brazen that he'll say, you can do what God wants in the time that you set, and you don't wait on God the Father's timing. See, this is a right thing in a wrong way, temptation. Nothing wrong with Jesus having a sandwich. Nothing wrong with Jesus glorifying himself, receiving glory, I should say, as the Messiah. It's wrong because of the timing. Will there be a glorious presentation of Messiah and every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth? There's no more glorious human who has ever or will ever exist than Jesus. And by the way, everyone's going to proclaim Jesus as Lord at some point. My prayer for you all is that you do it now, that you do it now while there is time before the coming judgment. So Jesus is presented with the challenge of timing. Jesus declared to him, again, it is written in Deuteronomy 6, you will not put to the test the Lord your God. So I say timing. Let me be corrected a little bit. Jesus says, you're using a legitimate offer that if I fall, I'll be borne up by the angels. And you're telling me to go force that to bring glory to myself. But that is going to put my father to the test. I am not here to put God the father to the test. Oh, do you really love me? You ever been around a manipulative person that wants to, that wants to get you to prove something? And then and the, you can prove your love, and you should demonstrate your love to one another, but you don't want to be putting people in circumstances where, they're, where they're, they feel manipulated, right? That's not, that's not love, right? The love is where you give what you can for the good of the other person. And if you have two people doing that, disregarding themselves, you have a beautiful marriage, but, but this idea that you're going to test God, we'll see if you really love me or if, if you really do what you said. I don't like Gideon as a hero. I think Gideon is a weak sister. And I don't like this fleece business. I've heard people suggest it in spiritual disciplines. Sometimes you just have to cast a fleece. Well, the fleece is God. Or are you really God? I believe God is God. I don't need to cast a fleece. I need to trust him. I need to t- trust him in what he said. And so we don't put the Lord to the test. And notice that Jesus pulls out of early Deuteronomy again because this is the best way to meet Satan's attacks As you grab God's word. So your idea of misapplying God's word is met with a correct application of God's word. Now that's subtle. See, the tempter's smart. He's smarter than us. He's gonna throw scripture at you. You have to properly interpret and apply scripture. God help us. We need the Holy Spirit to work in us because this is a powerful battle but the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he was showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Amen. He was showing them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Really? In the 30s AD, you're able to go to a place that's high enough and you can see all the kingdoms. Well, hey, hey, here in 2023 AD, you could watch a little clip of, of some satellite television that flips different cameras and shows you all the different countries of the world. There's 200 and something countries. It would be an easy project to just show you all the different countries and the glorious things about them. Travel TV. Oh, we've got that in technology, but Satan, the prince of the power of the air, he can't, he couldn't possibly do something like that uh, 2,000 years ago. We're pretty silly in terms of our, our understanding of God, Satan, the fallen angels, and the war we wage. But here's, those of you that believe the Bible, look what it says. Satan was able to show him all the kingdoms of the earth in their glory. Did he present a vision before him? Did he say, look below and see all that's below? However, he did this. In Luke chapter 4, the sister the parallel passage, Luke gives us the little extra piece that Satan said, these are all given to me. And I give them to whoever I want. I am in dominion over these kingdoms. Which kingdoms is that in verse 8 here? Which kingdoms? Everywhere but the United States. Right? Or um, in popular, uh, popular anti-Americanism here in our country, uh, the United States would be the one that would be under Satan's dominion. All the others are good ones. Not everybody is under the same dominion. Paul of of death and deception, all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, these all to you I will give if you fall down, Pipto, and worship me, proskuneo. If you fall down and worship me. It's easy. You get what you want. You get to be the king. After all, this whole discourse is demonstrating that he's the rightful king. So hey, king of the Jews, supposed to inherit all the nations in Psalm 2? Get them. They're yours to have. Right thing, the king of all the nations. Wrong way in submitting himself to Satan. Well, he was just trying to help the the father get what he wanted in a way that seemed right to him. Okay, that's called Satan apologetics. God isn't interested in man's efforts spoiling his works. Just look at how God set up the altar. When he told Israel to build an altar, he said, don't you use a tool on my stones. Don't you defile my stones with your tool work. I made this stone like I want. You make an altar out of stones. A, that's a picture here for us. We do it God's way. We don't do it man's way. If you fall down and worship me, is the only thing you have to do to receive all these kingdoms. And Satan, is, is, he's the king of the right thing in the wrong way, which is a subtle temptation. You know, by the time I'm starving for 40 days and 40 nights, I'm really not sharp on subtlety. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, the humanity of our Savior is able to call up, again, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Then Jesus said to him, go away from me, Satan, for it's written, the Lord your God you will worship and him alone you will serve. So I know the, the plenty of kung fu in God's word to meet all your little attacks. Now, the right thing is that Jesus receive all the kingdoms. The wrong way is through some sort of peace treaty with Satan. It's not going to be done through a peace treaty. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's how it goes. It's it's kinetic. It's high energy when God rests this dominion of darkness from Satan and brings the light. It's going to be magnificent. In Romans chapter eight, we're told that we are both the audience, we're both the, the spectators of this magnificent event, and we're also somehow the participants. Romans eight, read it the freedom, the curse of the earth would be removed and set free into the freedom of the sons of God. That's in context, that's us. That is our destiny. And Jesus uh, acts right in accordance with that destiny here of the coming kingdom. So he defeated Satan by meeting his temptations with the word of God, and then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and began to minister him. And that concludes the angels ministering to the humanity of Christ. That concludes the setup of who this is in the introduction of the king. I want to challenge you as you continue to consider the king, that all the gospels end with the same message. That this one we just read about, empowered by the spirit, born of the virgin with no sin nature of his own, prophesied from eternity past and well from from the beginnings of human history, known from eternity past, the righteous, holy, good, perfect person that we wish we were, but we're not because we're sinners. This one was nailed to a Roman cross and hung between heaven heaven and earth for crimes he did not commit because he was hated by Satan and those that are following him. In fact, we're told that Satan entered Judas Iscariot to uh, go and go get the, the temple guards that would seize Jesus and eventually he would be crucified. Satan was instrumental in getting Christ on the cross, not understanding the circumstance. It was that time between heaven and earth, six hours on the cross, the last three of which that we focus on, that Jesus Christ was covered and the whole area was covered with a supernatural thick darkness. And it was at that time that he opened his mouth. The lamb who was, who was silent before his shearers, he opened his mouth and started to scream. We're not told that he screamed out during his physical torture at the, with the scourging. We're not told when he was beaten with rods that he screamed or when they jammed a crown of thorns down on his head. But when he was covered in darkness and the cup was poured out, When he started to bear your sins and mine on the cross, he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The suffering of our Savior was for our sins. And you need to consider Christ if you haven't. If you're wondering how to, just the pastor gets all emotional sounding at the end. I don't know how to, I don't know how to address that. It's not how you feel. The question is, do you see the need? Do you see the truth? Do you see the problem of sin that's universal? We've talked about the universality of sin today. It's not just me. It's not just the, the tendencies I have or, or our country or, or whatever, or the people on the news. It's a universal problem that needs the solution, nothing less than God's Son paying for our sins on the cross. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we pray for the gospel message to penetrate every heart. We know that it's a supernatural work through those words of life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. We pray for the salvation of our loved ones, our family, our friends. Father, in some cases, uh, we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are enslaved to patterns of sin. They've re-enslaved themselves according to Romans chapter 6. They've submitted to the old master and they find themselves in a habit and they don't know how to break it. Father, sometimes that habit is is an addiction to self-importance self-righteousness, that'll cover and, and, and cover over with scar tissue the the, the, the basest sins, the most depravity, the worst destruction to other people They won't even look at themselves. Father, in every case, the cross is sufficient. Help us all consider it, that we came with nothing but need and sin, and Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Help us remember that that grace that you extended to us when we first trusted in Christ, we're supposed to extend constantly because we're constantly aware of our so great salvation, that we don't earn or deserve this grace gift, and because you've given us this grace, we are beholden to you to live it out, to represent it, to share this message of life in everything we say and think and do, and in fact, sharing the words of the gospel. Strengthen us for that purpose, Father, for our loved ones, help the, oh, you you have the keys of the door. We ask that you'd open the door of the gospel, and send those that need uh, to hear the word, send someone to say it in a way they'll understand. Let your spirit work in this, in this way, we pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.